0: As God's word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you.
1: And We continue our studies here in Mark. This morning we'll be considering verses 13 through verse 19. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which which is the sons of Thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. We read this far in God's holy and inspired word. The appointment of the twelve is very important. It marks in the terms of Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, a turning point with a new emphasis. This comes at about, right about the halfway mark of Jesus' three-year ministries. And there were really two emphases that we've seen in the ministry of Jesus so far. First, There's his conflict with the Jewish leaders and then second the emphasis that he hasn't come to do miracles but to preach the gospel. And now in light of those two emphases, the conflict with the Jewish leaders to show their hypocrisy and the emphasis on preaching the gospel, Jesus appoints these twelve as, we could say, his own new set of leaders and he prepares them to preach the gospel. And the significance, the importance of this is seen when we think of the impact that these twelve have on history, and especially on the history of the New Testament church. These twelve men would become the leaders and the, we could say, the founders of the New Testament church. In the office of apostle, they would complete the canon of scripture, and each of them, except Judas, would become important heralds of the gospel in different parts of the earth. Dispersed from Jerusalem, the gospel would be carried out by the apostles to Syria, to Africa, to Asia Minor, to Greece, to Italy, and even as far away as India. So that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, speaking of the church as a temple, says that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and we call the church today apostolic because it's built on the teaching of the apostles. And now, here, as Jesus calls the twelve, here, as Jesus uh, begins a new emphasis in his ministry, here, the one who says, I will build my church, has this in view, that these twelve will become the foundation, foundational in the church, not so much as people, but in their task and in their teaching. And so, Matthew 16, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the rock of the confession that Peter made. Very significant event. Now looking more closely at the details of this event, there are two things here really that stand out. The First, what Jesus did as he called and appointed the twelve. And then second, why he did it. What he did is described for us in verses t- uh, 13 and 14. He goeth up into a mountain. That's the first thing he did. He goeth up into a mountain. Luke indicates that he didn't do this in the morning, but he did it the previous evening, and that he went alone into the mountain and prayed all night. And the importance of it is is noted in Luke that he did this before he appointed the twelve. That's significant. What did he do? First thing he did was he prayed all night, even though he's sinless, even though he knows the heart and the character of his followers, even though he knows whom he would choose, before he calls them and appoints them, he prays. And perhaps this was a prayer for wisdom and discretion for himself in appointing the twelve, but more likely, knowing whom he will choose, and we'll get to their description in a little while, he's praying for them. And he's praying for himself in regard to them this way, that he may have strength because one of the twelve will be appointed by him as Judas, who will betray him. He prays for them. That's significant. It teaches us that the men whom God calls to serve in the church, your office bearers, need your prayers. As we'll see, they are ordinary men, these 12 are, and and so are the office bearers in the church. Those called to serve and lead in the church are but men. Pray for them. Pray that God give them wisdom. Pray that God give them uh, faithfulness, not only in their work, but in their personal lives. Pray that God give them perseverance and endurance in the work that they're called to do, In the church, Christ first here prays. Second, he calls a large multitude to himself. That's the idea in verse 13. He called unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. Whom he would here refers not just to the twelve, but a large multitude. Luke says this, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve. And so Jesus himself is here, as it were, moving his ministry out of the, we could say, the theater of the synagogues, and he's calling his disciples to himself. The first he prays, second he calls the multitude to himself, and then third he appoints from the multitude these twelve and calls them apostles. Now, as you look at these verses here, verses 13 and 14, what the emphasis falls on is the author... Of the call. There's a repetition seven times here in verses 13 and 14 of the pronoun he and him. That's emphatic. He called unto himself whom he would, and they came unto him, and he appointed. And you see the emphasis falls on Jesus Christ. And Luke uses the word he chose. Literally the word is the same word that's used for election. He elected. And it points to the power, the sovereign power of Jesus Christ, not just in election, but even in the appointment of these twelve. And that's very unusual. If you lived in this day and you followed a rabbi, you chose the rabbi, but Jesus doesn't ask here for volunteers. This isn't based on the willingness of them to follow him. But he chooses them. He says, come to me. He says, I'm going to prepare you and I'm going to send you out. I'm going to commission you. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, of the apostles, it says he gave some apostles. Christ did this. And that's the emphasis here in these verses. He chose them. He made them willing. He prepared them. And he sent them. Why did he do it? What was his purpose? And that's the second part here in verses 14 and 15, which mentions three things, three reasons or uh, three purposes in his appointing the twelve. First, it was It's expressed this way in verse 14, that they should be with him, that they should be with him. Now, in the first place, that shows us something of the humanity of Jesus Christ. He had a need for human companionship. Hebrews tells us he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Just as he needed sleep and food, so he needed friends. He didn't need the disciples in this sense that he couldn't do his work without them. In fact, when it comes to the end of his work, on the cross, then he suffered alone and they all forsook him. But the Bible tells us that he was made in all points like as we are. And that included his need for companionship. And in fact, we see among the disciples as they're described that because there are three who are the inner circle and there is one who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the closest companion, the soulmate. He chose them to be with him. But it points to more than that, much more than that, because Jesus didn't just do this because he wanted some close friends, but what's in view in this phrase, to be with him, is a special relationship of discipleship and training. He appoints them now so that over a period of a couple of years they can be equipped for the role that they will take up in the church as apostles and leaders. And what's important here is to see that this instruction that he's going to give to them is not... It's not so much a structured classroom-like intellectual training, but it's through fellowship and intimate connection with Jesus Christ that they are spiritually prepared. Think about that for ourselves. We're spiritually prepared through intimacy with Christ and with the body of Jesus Christ. We should put a priority on that. So that's the first purpose, that they might be with him. Second that he might send them forth to preach. And this, of course, was the primary reason that he called the twelve. But it's mentioned here second. And that's important because it it tells us that the thing that qualifies one to be a herald of the gospel is not intelligence or ability to speak or charisma, but intimacy with Jesus, that he knows Jesus. That's necessary. That qualifies one, first of all. And we're prepared through that intimacy with Christ to, to herald the gospel. But this is his main purpose, that he might send them forth to preach. And that, of course, reflects the main purpose of his coming, which has been the emphasis here in the first chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 38, Let us go into the next town that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth to preach. That's why I came. And he appoints the twelve to be the first preachers and heralds. Their preaching will be... As Paul puts it, the power of God unto salvation as heralds of Christ. And that's going to be reflected not just in these 12, but in the, in the New Testament church. Christ's purpose in coming, and now his purpose in sending out the 12, will be the purpose of the church. It will no longer be a national church. It won't be limited by geography or race, but it will be a church that proclaims and heralds The gospel to the ends of the earth It will be a church that witnesses, and the witness of that church will be used by Christ to build and to gather his church from the four corners of the earth, that he might send them forth to preach. And then verse 15 mentions a third purpose, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Miracles, a miraculous power. Now you see here that that comes third because that's not his primary purpose, but it is his purpose with the apostles and in the apostolic age. At the very end of this gospel, Mark chapter 16, uh, verse 20, they went forth, that is the apostles after Jesus' ascension, they went forth and preached everywhere. You see, that was their primary work. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So the signs, the miracles followed to confirm, and Paul speaks of these miracles as the gifts of the apostles during the apostolic age, a special and unique gift that was given to the apostles. And its purpose was to identify the one who they declared and proclaimed in the preaching as the one who had come from God, his divinity. And to identify his word and to call attention to his word in the gospel. So this is the call, the call, the important call. Now, whom does he call? Well, it's an unlikely ban, and the disciples are described for us here in verses 16 through 19 are listed for us here, and you find this same list in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, as well as in the book of Acts chapter 1. We don't want to spend too much time on their names and descriptions, but just say a few things about them, and the first is this, that in each of the four listings you find three groups of four, that is The first, the fifth, and the ninth are always listed the same. The other is this, that the first one listed always is Peter, and the last one listed always is Judas Iscariot. In the first group, we have Peter, James, and John, and then Peter's brother, Andrew. Peter, I said, is always listed first. He's the leader among the apostles. You see that in Acts 2 in his preaching on the day of Pentecost. James and John are mentioned with Peter, and these are the inner circle who spend more time with Jesus. The second group always begins with Philip. It's Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. We know a little more about each of these four than the ones that follow. Philip and Bartholomew were disciples of John, whom Jesus called to follow him. You can read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Matthew is Levi, and we know him as a publican and a tax collector. We've already seen his call here in the previous chapter. And then Thomas, the last of that second group of four, we know him as the doubter, which is a bit of a misnomer, because all of the disciples were doubters, but what we see in Thomas and the interactions is that Thomas was willing to speak up, a little bit like Peter, but not so much with confidence, more with questions. And Thomas, if he had a question asked it, there was a certain honesty about Thomas. Then the third group begins with James, this is a second James, you have, James and John, who are brothers, sons of Zebedee. This James is identified here as the son of Alphaeus. He's also called in the Gospels James the Less, or that could be James the Short, so perhaps that refers to his physical stature. We don't know much about him. Thaddeus, who's also called Jude or Judas, and we don't know a lot about him either. And then Simon the Canaanite, who's also known as Simon the Zealot. And we'll say a little bit about that in a minute. And then the last one mentioned there is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, and he's always lost on the list. Peter first, Judas lost. So 12 names, 12 men. What's the importance of this, the, and this listing? Well, there are three things here for us to see. The first is that these were all very common, ordinary men. Four of them we know were fishermen. One of them was a publican or a tax collector. Another was a political zealot, Simon the Zealot. None of them are noted for education or learning. There's no scribe or Pharisee or lawyer or doctor among them, but in fact they're all considered by the scribes and the Pharisees ignorant and unlearned men. All of them, but Judas Iscariot, are from Galilee. They weren't famous men, not at this point. And in fact only four of them are labeled here, identified here with last names, surnames and those are names that Jesus gives to them. He chooses average, ordinary men. The second thing to notice about this list is that they were an extremely diverse group of men, extremely diverse in in their backgrounds, in their perspectives, in their temperaments, in their personality. You see that when you put a couple of them next to each other here. Simon the zealot and Matthew the publican, the tax collector. These men, politically at least, were on... Completely opposite ends of the scale. Different perspectives. Simon was a zealot. The zealots were something like a a terrorist organization. And their purpose uh, and their existence was to overthrow the Roman authority. And they did this even through assassination. Simon was a nationalist, a strong Jew. Matthew, on the other hand, was something more like a traitor. He worked for the occupying enemy. And he did did this for his own personal wealth. And gain, He was willing to give up loyalty to Israel for his own comfort. Despised he was by the Jews as a traitor. So these two men, and now here they sit together as Jesus' disciples. Or you can see this as you look at their personalities as well. Think of Peter, impetuous Peter. James and John labeled here sons of thunder. Later they want to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans who won't give them food and rest. And then on, on the other hand, you've got Nathaniel who sits, watches, contemplates under a tree. Or Andrew, apparently Peter's older brother, and he's almost anonymous in the gospel. So quiet. So there's this diversity. These, these men weren't clones of each other. And then the third thing for us to notice about this list is that these, this is a list of imperfect, sinful men. Imperfect and sinful men. And that becomes very obvious. Throughout Jesus' ministry, you think of the pride of Peter. Or you think of James and John and and, and their self-interests. Or you think of Matthew and Simon, who we've talked about already. Matthew, the, the tax collector. Simon, the zealot. Sinful men. Or how often all of them doubted. All of them were fearful. How often didn't they squabble with each other? And yet Jesus chose These imperfect men to be his apostles, and he gave them power over demons. He appointed them to be heralds of the gospel. And that brings us to the final point, the enduring significance, and I want to close with three applications. The first is this, that what we see here in the founding of the church, as Jesus calls and appoints the apostles, is reflected in the character of the church that will follow. That's really summed up for us in in. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul says to the church at Corinth, you see, or you consider, you understand your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. What we see here is reflected in all of the church, in all those whom Christ calls to follow him. And that should be an encouragement to us. Our worth in the kingdom and even our effectiveness in the kingdom is not found in who we are or in our accomplishments and that has application within the body of believers in a church as well. In First Corinthians 12, this is what Paul is talking about again when he speaks of the body and its diversity of members and the value of every member in the body and that those members which among us are overlooked are the critical members, the crucial members of the body. And you see that even as you look at these disciples. Peter becomes prominent, Paul does too. A few of them write different parts of the New Testament scriptures, but The rest of them remain relatively unknown. And the point is this, that God has given each member, each of these apostles, gifts and a place in his body. And the worst thing that can happen in the church, and you see this in the ministry of Jesus Christ, is that one becomes jealous of another's gifts and place. And you see that among the disciples. And Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have loved one for another. And the place where God has put us There we are to be faithful. There we are to put our gifts to use. And God will do with with us and with our gifts as he pleases. One plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. And what's important for us to see is that we all need one another in the body and we are all needed in the body. The second point of significance that we see here is is the power of the grace of God. Not only God's power To use weak means not only God's power to call sinners from darkness to light, but his power to change and to transform sinners. He calls us. He calls us as unique individuals, but he calls us in order to change us. And you see that here in these 12. Just think of the Apostle John. He's probably the youngest of the 12. He's also the one that we know as the disciple whom Jesus loved, closest to Jesus. And as we read his epistles, we know him as the apostle of love. Over and over in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another. But you see, what he's called here, Boanerges, son of thunder. That refers to his zeal. He's a zealous individual. Not zealous like Simon politically, but zealous religiously. Zealous for the Lord. And in that zeal, there's a, there's a lack of love. We see that when He wants to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritan. We could call him as a young Christian, one who has misdirected zeal, but then look at who he, by the power of God's grace, becomes. You read his letters and they're effusive with love. And we'd say, if we knew him when he was young and then read those things, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? But that's the power of God's grace to transform, to bring repentance and change, to produce meekness, and an emptying of self. And that's what it is to be a disciple, isn't it? To to forsake all and follow him. They brought nothing. And he transformed them by the power of his grace. And there's one more thing in closing. And it's this description of Jesus' purpose in calling the disciples. He called them to be with him. What that describes is friendship, fellowship, communion. And I said Jesus needed that, but Jesus also creates that. He creates that. Later he says to the disciples, I call you no more servants but friends. And he speaks to them as friends. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That he brings us into friendship, covenant friendship with himself. And it's not just a friendship between us and him, but it's a friendship that he creates in the church. It's, It's described as the unity of believers in the body. Yes, there's a diversity, and yes, there's change that comes through the power of the gospel, but there's especially this, a a unity that we're brought together in one body. Not uniformity, we're just like each other. Unity with diversity, in which we recognize differences, we respect those differences, we thank God for who the other members are. We are sharpened by those differences, and we learn we're changed through the communion with other believers. And that really shows us the beauty of the church. There's nothing like it in all the world. These don't come together because they have a common interest, but they come together in the spirit and in faith. And that's what brings us together as a body of believers too. And that's the power of the gospel
0: of Jesus Christ that has called us to. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, the Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.